Chapter Ten of the Stark Monroe Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stark Monroe Letters by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Ten, Cadogan Terrace, Birch Spool, twenty-first of May, eighteen eighty-two. My dear old chap, things have been happening, and I must tell you all about it. Sympathy is a strange thing. For though I never see you, the mere fact that you over there in New England are keenly interested in what I am doing and thinking makes my own life in Old England very much more interesting to me. The thought of you is like a good staff in my right hand. The unexpected has happened so continually in my life that it has ceased to deserve the name. You remember that in my last I had received my dismissal, and was on the eve of starting for the little country town of Stockwell to see if there were any sign of a possible practice there. Well, in the morning, before I came down to breakfast, I was putting one or two things into a bag when there came a timid knock at my door, and there was Mrs. Collingworth in her dressing-jacket with her hair down her back. "'Would you mind coming down and seeing James, Dr. Monroe?' said she. "'He has been very strange all night, and I am afraid that he is ill.' Down I went, and found Collingworth looking rather red in the face, and a trifle wild about the eyes. He was sitting up in bed with the neck of his nightgown open, and an acute angle of hairy chest exposed. He had a sheet of paper, a pencil, and a clinical thermometer upon the coverlet in front of him. "'Deuced interesting thing, Monroe,' said he. "'Come and look at this temperature chart. "'I've been taking it every quarter of an hour, since I couldn't sleep, "'and it's up and down till it looks like the mountains in the geography books. "'We'll have some drugs in, eh, what, Monroe? "'And by crumbs, we'll revolutionize all their ideas about fevers. "'I'll write a pamphlet from personal experiment "'that will make all their books clean out of date, "'and love to tear them up and wrap sandwiches in them.' "'He was talking in the rapid, slurring way of a man who has trouble coming. "'I looked at his chart and saw that he was over 102 degrees.' His pulse rub-a-dubbed under my fingers, and his skin sent a glow into my hand. "'Any symptoms?' I asked, sitting down on the side of his bed. "'Tongue like a nutmeg grater,' said he, thrusting it out. "'Frontal headache, renal pains, no appetite, and a mouse nibbling inside my left elbow. "'That's as far as we've got at present.' "'I'll tell you what it is, Collingworth,' said I. "'You've a touch of rheumatic fever, and you will have to lie by for a bit.' "'Lie by be hanged!' he cried. "'I've got a hundred people to see to-day.' "'My boy, I must be down there if I have the rattle in my throat. "'I didn't build up a practice to have it ruined by a few ounces of lactic acid.' "'James, dear, you can easily build up another one,' said his wife, in her cooing voice. "'You must do what Dr. Monroe tells you.' "'Well,' said I, "'you'll want looking after, and your practice will want looking after, "'and I am quite ready to do both, but I won't take the responsibility "'unless you give me your word that you will do what you are told.' "'If I'm to have any doctoring, it must come from you, laddie,' he said." "'for if I was to turn my toes up in the public square, "'there's not a man here who would do more than sign my certificate. "'By crumbs, they might get the salts and oxalic acid mixed up "'if they came to treat me, for there's no love lost between us. "'But I want to go down to the practice all the same. "'It's out of the question. "'You know the sequel of this complaint. "'You'll have endocarditis, embolism, thrombosis, metastatic abscesses. "'You know the danger as well as I do.' "'He sank back into his bed laughing.' "'I take my complaints one at a time, thank you,' said he. "'I wouldn't be so greedy as to have all those. "'Eh, Monroe, what? "'When many another poor devil hasn't got an ache to his back.' "'The four posts of his bed quivered with his laughter. "'Do what you like, laddie. "'But I say, mind, if anything should happen, "'no tomfoolery over my grave. "'If you put so much as a stone there by crumbs, Monroe, "'I'll come back in the dead of the night "'and plant it on the pit of your stomach.' "'Nearly three weeks passed before he could set his foot to the ground again.' He wasn't such a bad patient, after all, but he rather complicated my treatment by getting in all sorts of files and powders, and trying to experiment upon his own symptoms. 
It was impossible to keep him quiet, and our only means of restraining him in bed was to allow him all the work that he could do there. He wrote copiously, built up models of his patent screen, and banged off pistols at his magnetic target, which he had rigged tip on the mantelpiece. Nature has given him a constitution of steel, however, and he shook off his malady more quickly and more thoroughly than the most docile of sufferers. In the meantime, Mrs. Collingworth and I ran the practice together. As a substitute for him, I was a dreadful failure. They would not believe in me in the least. I felt that I was as flat as water after champagne. I could not address them from the stairs, nor push them about, nor prophecy to the anemic women. I was much too solemn and demure after what they had been accustomed to. However, I held the thing together as best I could, and I don't think that he found the practice much the worse when he was able to take it over. I could not descend to what I thought was unprofessional, but I did my very best to keep the wheels turning. Well, I know that I am a shockingly bad storyteller, but I just try and get things as near the truth as I can manage it. If I only knew how to color it up, I could make some of this better reading. I can get along when I am on one line, but it is when I have to bring in a second line of events that I understand what Collingworth means when he says that I will never be able to keep myself in nibs by what I earn in literature. The second line is this, that I had written to my mother on the same night that I wrote to you last, telling her that there need no longer be a shadow of disagreement between us because everything was arranged and I was going to leave Collingworth at once. Then, within a couple of posts, I had to write again and announce that my departure was indefinitely postponed and that I was actually doing his whole practice. Well, the dear old lady was very angry. I don't suppose she quite understood how temporary the necessity was and how impossible it would have been to leave Collingworth in the lurch. She was silent for nearly three weeks, and then she wrote a very stinging letter, and she handles her adjectives most deftly when she likes. She went so far as to say that Collingworth was a, quote, bankrupt swindler, unquote, and that I had dragged the family honor in the dirt by my prolonged association with him. This letter came on the morning of the very last day that my patient was confined to the house. When I returned from work, I found him sitting in his dressing gown downstairs. His wife, who had driven home, was beside him. To my surprise, when I congratulated him on being fit for work again, his manner, which had been most genial during his illness, was as ungracious as before our last explanation. His wife, too, seemed to avoid my eye, and cocked her chin at me when she spoke. "'Yes, I'll take it over tomorrow,' said he. "'What do I owe you for looking after it?' "'Oh, it was all in the day's work,' said I. "'Thank you. I'd rather have strict business,' he answered. "'You know where you are, then, but a favor is a thing with no end to it. "'What do you put it at?' "'I never thought about it in that light. "'Well, think about it now. "'A locum would have cost me four guineas a week. Four fours, sixteen. "'Make it twenty. "'While I promise to allow you a pound a week, and you were to pay it back, "'I'll put twenty pounds to your credit account, "'and you'll have it every week as sure as Saturday.' "'Thank you,' said I. If you are so anxious to make a business matter of it, you can arrange it so. I could not make out, and cannot make out now, what had happened to freeze them up so, but I suppose that they had been talking it over, and came to the conclusion that I was setting down too much upon the old lines, that they must remind me that I was under orders to quit. They might have done it with more tact. To cut a long story short, on the very day that Collingworth was able to resume his work, I started off for Stockwell, taking with me only a bag, for it was merely a prospecting expedition and I intended to return for my luggage if I saw reason for hope. Alas, there was not the faintest. The sight of the place would have damped the most sanguine man that ever lived. It is one of those picturesque little English towns with a history and little else. A Roman trench and a Norman keep are its principal products. But to me the most amazing thing about it was the cloud of doctors which had settled upon it. A double row of brass plates flanked the principal street. Where their patients came from I could not imagine unless they practiced upon each other. The hosts of the bowl where I had my modest lunch, 
explained the mystery to some extent by saying that as there was pure country with hardly a hamlet for nearly twelve miles in every direction it was in these scattered farmhouses that the stockwell doctors found their patients as i chatted with him a middle-aged dusty-booted man trudged up the street there's dr adam said he he's only a newcomer but they say that some of these days he'll be starting his carriage what do you mean by a newcomer i asked oh he's scarcely been here ten years said the landlord thank you said i can you tell me when the next train leaves for bradfield so back i came rather heavy at heart and having spent ten or twelve shillings which i could ill afford my fruitless journey seemed a small thing however when i thought of the rising stockwellite with his ten years in his dusty boots i can trudge along a path however rough if it will but lead to something but may kindly fate keep me out of all cul-de-sacs the collingsworth did not receive me cordially upon my return there was a singular look upon both their faces which seemed to me to mean that they were disappointed at this hitch getting rid of me when i think of their absolute geniality a few days ago and their markedly reserved manner now i can make no sense out of it i asked collingworth point-blank what it meant but he only turned it off with a forced laugh and some nonsense about my thin skin i think that i am the last man in the world to take offence where none is meant but at any rate i determined to end the matter by leaving bradfield at once it had struck me during my journey back from Stockwell, that Birch's pool would be a good place. So on the very next day I started off, taking my luggage with me, and bidding a final good-bye to Collingworth and his wife. "'You rely upon me, laddie,' said Collingworth, with something of his old geniality, as we shook hands on parting. "'You get a good house in a central position, put up your plate, and hold on by your toenails. Charge little or nothing until you get a connection. And none of your professional hot ammy or you are a broken man. I'll see that you don't stop steaming for want of coal.' So with that comforting assurance I left them on the platform of the Bradfield station. The words seem kind, do they not? And yet taking this money jars every nerve in my body. When I find that I can live on bread and water without it, I will have no more of it. But to do without it now would be for the man who cannot swim to throw off his life-belt. I had plenty of time on my way to Birch's Pool to reflect upon my prospects and present situation. My baggage consisted of a large brass plate, a small leather trunk, and a hat-box. The plate with my name engraved upon it was balanced upon the rack above my head. In my box were a stethoscope, several medical books, a second pair of boots, two suits of clothes, my linen, and my toilet things. With this, and the five pounds eighteen shillings which remain in my purse, I was sallying out to clear standing room, and win the right to live from my fellow men. But at least there was some chance of permanency about this, and if there was the promise of poverty and hardship, there was also that of freedom." I shall have no Lady Saltire to toss up her chin because I had my own view of things, no Collingworth to fly out at me about nothing. I would be my own, my very own. I capered up and down the carriage at the thought. After all, I had everything to gain and nothing in the whole wide world to lose, and I had youth and strength and energy, and the whole science of medicine packed in between my two ears. I felt as exultant as though I were going to take over some practice which lay ready for me. It was about four in the afternoon when I reached Birchespool, which is fifty-three miles by rail from Bradfield. It may be merely a name to you, and indeed, until I set foot in it, I knew nothing of it myself, but I can tell you now that it has a population of a 130,000 souls, about the same as Bradfield, that it is mildly manufacturing, that it is within an hour's journey of the sea, that it has an aristocratic western suburb with a mineral well, and that the country round is exceedingly beautiful. It is small enough to have a character of its own, and large enough for solitude, which is always the great charm of a city after the offensive publicity of the country." When I turned out with my brass plate, my trunk, and my hat-box upon the Birch's Pool platform, I sat down and wondered what my first move should be. Every penny was going to be of the most vital importance to me, and I must plan things within the compass of that tiny purse. As I sat pondering, 
there came a sight of interest, for I heard a burst of cheering with the blare of a band upon the other side of the station, and then the pioneers and leading files of a regiment came swinging onto the platform. They wore white sun-hats, and were leaving from Malta in anticipation of war in Egypt. They were young soldiers, English by the white facings, with a colonel whose mustache reached his shoulders, and a number of fresh-faced, long-legged subalterns. I chiefly remember one of the color sergeants, a man of immense size and ferocious face, who leaned upon his martini. With two little white kittens peeping over either shoulder from the flaps of his knapsack, I was so moved at the sight of these youngsters going out to do their best for the dear old country that I sprang up on my box, took off my hat, and gave them three cheers. At first the folk on my side looked at me in their bovine fashion, like a row of cows over a wall. At the second a good many joined, and at the third my own voice was entirely lost. So I turned to go my way, and the soldier laddies to go theirs, and I wondered which of us had the stiffest and longest fight before us. I left my baggage at the office and jumped into a tram-car which was passing the station, with the intention of looking for lodgings, as I judged that they would be cheaper than a hotel. The conductor interested himself in my wants in that personal way which makes me think that the poorer classes in England are one of the kindliest races on earth. Policemen, postmen, railway guards, busmen. What good helpful fellows they all are. This one reckoned the whole thing out, how this street was central but dear, and the other was out of the way but cheap, and finally dropped me at a medium shabby genteel kind of thoroughfare called Cadogan Terrace, with instructions that I was to go down there and see how I liked it. I could not complain of a limited selection, for a to-let or apartments was peeping out of every second window. I went into the first attractive house that I saw, and interviewed the rather obtuse and grasping old lady who owned it. A sitting bedroom was to be had for thirteen shillings a week. As I had never hired rooms before, I had no idea whether this was cheap or dear, but I conclude it was the latter, since on my raising my eyebrows as an experiment she instantly came down to ten shillings and sixpence. I tried another look and an exclamation of astonishment, but as she stood firm I gathered that I had touched the bottom. "'Your rooms are quite clean?' I asked, for there was a wooden panelling which suggested possibilities. "'Quite clean, sir.' "'No vermin?' "'The officers of the garrison come sometimes.' This took some thinking out. It had an ugly sound, but I gathered that she meant there could be no question about the cleanliness, since these gentlemen were satisfied. So the bargain was struck, and I ordered tea to be ready in an hour, while I went back to the station to fetch up my luggage. A porter brought it up for eight pence, saving four pence on a cab, my boy, and so I found myself in the heart of Birch's Pool with a base of operations secured. I looked out of the little window of my lodgings at the reeking pots and grey sloping roofs, with a spire or two spurting up among them, and I shook my teaspoon defiantly at them. "'You've got to conquer me,' said I, "'or else I'm man enough to conquer you. "'Now, you would hardly expect that a fellow would have an adventure "'on his very first night in a strange town. "'But I had a trivial one, it is true, "'but fairly exciting while it lasted. "'Certainly it reads more like what might happen to a man in a book, "'but you may take it from me that it worked out "'just as I set it down here. "'When I had finished my tea, I wrote a few letters, "'one to Collingworth and one to Horton.' Then, as it was a lovely evening, I determined to stroll out and see what sort of place it was upon which fate had washed me up. Best begin as you mean to go on, thought I. So I donned my frock coat, put on my carefully brushed top hat, and sallied forth with my very respectable metal-headed walking stick in my hand. I walked down to the park, which is the chief centre of the place, and I found that I liked everything I saw of it. It was a lovely evening, and the air was fresh and sweet. I sat down and listened to the band for an hour, watching all the family parties, and feeling particularly lonely. Music nearly always puts me into the minor key. So there came a time when I could stand it no longer, and I set off to find my way back to my lodgings. On the whole, I felt that Birch's Pool was a place in which a man might very well spend a happy life. At one end of Cadogan Terrace, where I am lodging, 
there is a wide open space where several streets meet. In the center of this stands a large lamp in the middle of a broad stone pedestal, a foot or so high and ten or twelve across. Well, as I strolled along I saw there was something going on round this lamp post. A crowd of people had gathered with a swirl in the center. I was, of course, absolutely determined not to get mixed up in any row, but I could not help pushing my way through the crowd to see what was the matter. It wasn't a pretty sight. A woman, pinched and bedraggled, with a baby on her arm, was being knocked about by a burly brute of a fellow whom I judged to be her husband from the way in which he cherished her. He was one of those red-faced, dark-eyed men who can look peculiarly malignant when they choose. It was clear that he was half mad with drink, and that she had been trying to lure him away from some den. I was just in time to see him take a flying kick at her amid cries of shame from the crowd, and then lurch forward again, with the evident intention of having another, the mob still expostulating vaguely. If, Bertie, it had been old student days, I should have sailed straight in, as you or any other fellow would have done. My flesh crept with my loathing for the brute. But I also had to think of what I was and where I was, and what I had come there to do. However, there are some things which a man cannot stand, so I took a couple of steps forward, put my hand on the fellow's shoulder, and said in as conciliatory and genial a voice as I could muster, "'Come, come, my lad, pull yourself together.' Instead of pulling himself together, he very nearly knocked me asunder. I was all abroad for an instant. He had turned on me like a flash and had struck me on the throat just under the chin, my head being a little back at the moment. It made me swallow once or twice, I can tell you. Sudden as the blow was, I had countered, in the automatic sort of way that a man who knows anything of boxing does, it was only from the elbow, with no body behind it, but it served to stave him off for a moment, while I was making inquiries about my windpipe. Then in he came with a rush, and the crowd swarming round with shrieks of delight, we were pushed, almost locked in each other's arms, on that big pedestal of which I have spoken. "'Go it, little un! Give him beans!' yelled the mob, who had lost all sight of the origin of the fray, and could only see that my opponent was two inches the shorter man." So there, my dear Bertie, was I, within a few hours of my entrance into this town, with my top hat down to my ears, my highly professional frock coat, and my kid gloves, fighting some low bruiser on a pedestal in one of the most public places, in the heart of a yelling and hostile mob. I ask you whether that was cruel luck or not. Collingworth told me before I started that Birch's Pool was a lively place. For the next few minutes it struck me as the liveliest I had ever seen. The fellow was a round-hand hitter, but so strong that he needed watching. A round blow is, as you know, more dangerous than a straight one if it gets home, for the angle of the jaw, the ear, and the temple are the three weakest points which you present. However, I took particular care that my man did not get home, but on the other hand, I fear that I did not do him much harm either. He bored in with his head down, and I, like a fool, broke my knuckles over the top of his impenetrable skull. Of course, theoretically, I should either have stepped back and tried an undercut, or else taken him into chancery but I must confess to feeling flurried and rattled from the blow I had had, as well as from the suddenness of the whole affair. However, I was cooling down, and I dare say I should in time have done something rational, when the affray came to a sudden and unexpected end. This was from the impatience and excitement of the crowd. The folk behind, wishing to see all that was going on, pushed against those in front, until half a dozen of the foremost, with, I think, a woman among them, were flung right up against us. One of these, a rough, sailor-like fellow in a jersey, got wedged between us and my antagonist, in his blind rage, got one of his swinging blows home upon this newcomer's ear. "'What, you!' yelled the sailor. And in an instant he had taken over the whole contract, and was at it, hammer and tongs, with my beauty. I grabbed my stick, which had fallen among the crowd, and backed my way out, rather disheveled, but very glad to get off so cheaply. From the shouting which I could hear some time after I reached the door of my lodgings, I gathered that a good battle was still raging. 
You see, it was the merest piece of luck in the world that my first appearance in Birchespool was not in the dock of the police court. I should have had no one to answer for me if I had been arrested, and I should have been put quite on a level with my adversary. I dare say you think I made a great fool of myself, but I should like to know how I could have acted otherwise. The only thing that I feel now is my loneliness. What a lucky fellow you are with your wife and child. After all, I see more and more clearly that both men and women are incomplete, fragmentary, mutilated creatures as long as they are single. Do what they may to persuade themselves that their state is the happiest, they are still full of vague unrests, of dim, ill-defined dissatisfactions, and of a tendency to narrow ways and selfish thoughts. Alone, each is a half-made being, with every instinct and feeling yearning for its missing moiety. Together they form a complete and symmetrical whole, the minds of each strongest where that of the other needs reinforcing. I often think that if our souls survive death, and I believe they do, though I base my belief on very different grounds from yours, every male soul will have a female one attached to it or combined with it, to round it off and give it symmetry. So thought the old Mormon, you remember, who used it as an argument for his creed. You cannot take your railway stocks into the next world with you, he said, but with all our wives and children we should make a good start in the world to come. I dare say you are smiling at me as you read this, from the vantage ground of your two years of matrimony. It will be long before I shall be able to put my views into practice. Well, good-bye, my dear old chap. As I said at the beginning of my letter, the very thought of you is good for me, and never more so than at this moment, when I am alone in a strange city, with very dubious prospects and an uncertain future. We differ as widely as the Poles, you and I, and have done ever since I have known you. You are true to your faith, I to my reason, you to your family belief, I to my own ideas, but our friendship shows that the real essentials of a man and his affinity for others depends upon quite other things than views on abstract questions. Anyway, I can say with all my heart that I wish I saw you with that old corn-cob of yours between your teeth, sitting in that rickety American leather armchair, with the villainous lodging-house antimacassar over the back of it. It is good of you to tell me how interested you are in my commonplace adventures, though if I had not known that you were so, you may be sure that I should never have ventured to inflict any of them upon you. My future is now all involved in obscurity, but it is obvious that the first thing I must do is to find a fitting house, and my second to cajole the landlord into letting me enter into possession of it without any prepayment. To that I will turn myself to-morrow morning, and you shall know the result. Whom should I hear from the other day but Archie McLoggan? Of course it was a begging letter. You can judge how far I am in a state to lose money. But in a hot fit I sent him ten shillings, which now, in my cold, I bitterly regret. With every good wish to you and yours, including your town, your state, and your great country, yours as ever. End of chapter 10